to be here today. Uh, as Tammy mentioned in the video uh, a number of years ago, uh, I served with Phil. He was actually the very first pastor that I ever worked for. So whatever happens today, if it's bad, you can blame him. If it's good, I suppose you can give Tammy the credit. I am uh, uniquely honored to be in this space today because uh, I so believed uh, that Phil needed to start a church that uh, I gave him money to do it. Uh, I remember a check for $500 to him and said, I really think that this is something that you ought to do. Now, that was 20 years ago, so he's been a little slow on the uptake. Um, and I hope that he invested it wisely, because if so, you know, I mean, who knows what could happen at that. But uh, it's a privilege to be here, and I'm excited for what, uh, what is happening here in this place, in this church, in this time, and in this place. And for me to be able to, to teach to you today uh, is an honor, and I'm humbled to do so. I travel for a living. I get on an airplane every week, uh, which uh, when I first started doing that kind of sounded glamorous until uh, the first time I woke up in a hotel room and I didn't know what city I was in. And then I went out to the car, and I couldn't remember what my rental car was. And uh, so I've learned that the reason that they put panic buttons on cars is not really for the reason that we all think. Uh, they put panic button on cars because I don't know what midsize silver sedan I'm driving today. So I go out to the parking lot, and I push the button, and you know that's how I find my rental car in a parking lot. Uh, so I do that every week, week in and week out. And uh, so uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, I was leaving Oklahoma City to fly back home to Denver. And... Uh, I, I have this moment every time I get on an airplane where I think to myself, maybe, maybe, just maybe, today is the day when I won't have anybody sitting in the seat next to me. And, and for that hour and 15-minute flight from Oklahoma City to Denver, maybe I'll just get a little bit of space of my own. I like to choose my own seat on an airplane, and, and I, I know planes really well, so I know just exactly what seat to pick. So on A320s, the seat that you want on a United flight is seat number 20. It's on the exit row, and there are only two seats in that row because there's a space left for the exit door. This increases the likelihood that I will have an empty seat. As the plane fills up, no one's sitting in the seat next to me, and it goes further and further along, and I try not to get my hopes up, but I find myself being really invested in this moment of the empty seat next to me. I've got my best no face on just in case. Okay? Now, I'm not an airplane talker. I put my no face on so that people know when they sit down, don't talk to this guy. <laughs> Some of you on airplanes are chatterboxes. I don't understand you at all. <laughs> you puzzle me. I have my no face on. The seat next to me is empty. Finally, they close the cabin door. Oh, yes. The seat is empty. For the next hour and 15 minutes, I will get this space to myself. At that moment, the flight attendant walks past me goes to the back of the airplane to a middle seat and offers a 19-year-old army private a better seat, the seat next to me. He makes his way towards the front of the plane, excuses himself as he steps into the seat next to me, all the while I'm still wearing my no face, and he sits down and immediately takes over the middle armrest. Now, apparently he didn't know that there's a protocol for the middle armrest. <laughs> and the protocol for the middle armrest is this. He who is there first gets the armrest. Not only does he have the middle armrest, he has a good portion of my seat as well. For whatever reason, he's leaning my direction. I'm thinking, you've got a whole empty space on the other side of you. Lean that way. This doesn't happen. Immediately, I put my headphones on. 
We taxi down the runway. They do the pre-flight, blah, blah, blah. I don't pay any attention to it. Except for the fact that I'm distracted by the 19-year-old army private next to me apparently has not taken his medication. He's ADD. He's all over the place, fidgeting. I'm thinking maybe he's afraid to fly. As the plane takes off, I watch closely to see if this is true, if he's afraid to fly. Most people who are afraid to fly, when the plane takes off, they grab hold of the armrests like it's going to save their lives. I try not to touch too many things on a plane, because I call it the petri dish of death. <laughs> it's where all known communicable diseases come from. When the plane takes off, he doesn't grab hold of his armrests, but he is still agitated in his seat, shifting back and forth. This goes on for 20 minutes. 20 minutes into the flight, he pulls out a notebook from his breast pocket, and he begins to feverishly flip through the pages of this book. At this, I start thinking to myself, this guy is going to wig out on this plane. He's going to go nuts. And he has a plan, and he's reviewing it right now. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm going to be on the news tonight. Army private freaks out on unsuspecting consultant, news at 10. He then folds the notebook back up, puts it back in his breast pocket, and then did something that shocked me. He leaned over and he poked me really hard. <laughs> Not a tap, a poke. At which my thought was this. Step one in freak out on the plane plan. Poke the guy next to you really hard. I take my headphones off, and he says to me, where is this plane going? I hope not to hell with you, is what I'm thinking. <laughs> he sees the look of puzzlement on my face, and he says, where are you headed? And I said, well, we're headed to Denver. At that, he breathes a huge sigh of relief, and his entire demeanor changes. He said, when the plane took off, the flight attendant said that the flight to Dallas was an hour and 20 minutes long. For 30 minutes, he thought he was on the wrong plane. He said, I, I just finished basic training, and this is the first time I get to see my family, and I've got a three-day pass. I've got to get home to Phoenix. I have to fly through Denver. Uh, and they're shipping me out on Monday. I said, where are they sending you? He said, they're sending me to Afghanistan. And then I asked a question that as the words came out of my mouth, I, I, I thought, what a stupid question to ask. I, I said, do you want to go? He looked me straight in the eye and he said, yes, absolutely, I want to go. I had never been more honored or more humbled to sit next to anybody on an airplane in my whole life. But in that moment, I was reminded of the fact that I oftentimes misjudge situations. I do it all the time. I take whatever facts or perceptions are given to me or, or, or I get, and I just run with it and, and generally come to the wrong conclusion. Have you ever done that? Have you ever found yourself in that place where you go, wow, I was dumb? 
I felt so dumb, I couldn't even talk to the guy for the rest of the flight. I'm like, this guy at 19 years old has a better perspective on life than I do. I'm worried about whether or not I get the empty seat next to me. I want to share with you another story, a a much older story. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to follow along. The story is found in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. It's early in the morning in the story when the very religious would get up and they would go to the the temple. They would go to their religious place of worship. And Jesus appears at the temple along with them and he begins to hang out in the courtyard and he begins to teach. Jesus wasn't a trained rabbi. He was not a religious authority in his day. He was from a hick town, actually. And prior to now, he'd been a blue-collar worker. He was not well-dressed, but he was remarkably well-spoken. People were drawn by his words. They were captured by the stories he would tell, and people would be astonished just to gather to listen to him teach. As his crowds grew bigger and bigger, so did the jealousy of these religious leaders who had gathered in the temple that day. And in this story in John chapter 8, it says, in the midst of the crowd, a stirring begins to happen. And people begin to whisper and to point and to stare. To their astonishment, a woman is being drugged through the courtyard. A few gasps could be heard, and a woman was dropped at the feet of Jesus. And in verse 4 of John chapter 8, it says that one of the religious leaders who was dragging her spoke to Jesus, and he says, this woman was caught. She was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. According to the law, she's to be put to death by stoning. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say? The trap had been set, and now they waited for Jesus to walk into it. Now was the time to put an end to this simple man, this guy who didn't have any training, who didn't have a college degree, who couldn't even dress well enough to be in the temple, much less gather a crowd. Now was the time to put an end to this. So the trap had been set. There was a long pause. It was one of those pauses that went on way, way, way too long. And Jesus stops what he's doing. He knelt down into the dirt and began to doodle. That's right, you heard me. Jesus was a doodler. (laughs) Now we train this out of kids when they're young, right? They're in class and they're doodling and the teacher comes along and says, don't do this, pay attention, get to your work. We stop people from being doodlers, but Jesus was a doodler. And if you're a doodler, you just go right on and doodle. He drops to his knees and he begins to draw in the dirt and everyone looked on and waited in absolute astonishment. A question has been posed, a pretty good one according to most people. They're waiting for the answer. The pause has gone on too long. Jesus is now drawing in the dirt. Would have loved to have been there. The tension must have been amazing. Soon the religious leaders begin to taunt him. Come on, Jesus, what do you say about this? What do you think needs to be done here? And then it happened. Jesus stood up. He looked him straight in the eye. And in verse 7, he says, The sinless among you should go first. You throw the first stone. Oh, the perfect, brilliant answer. This is why he could gather a crowd. The sinless among you go first. 
Come on, do it. Throw the first stone. Then he went back to drawing in the dirt. And the crowd stood there, stunned. Slowly, one by one, they left. The oldest ones first. Because the older you are, the more you should realize your list is longer than everyone else's, right? That's another thing that you can put on the list that's not so good about growing old. Your sin list gets longer. So the older ones leave first until it says there's no one left except for one. There in the dirt was Jesus with a lone, solitary woman. Where is everyone? Jesus asks. Did no one stay to condemn you? In a broken voice, the woman speaks and she says, No one, Master. And in verse 11, Jesus' response is simple, profound, and life-altering. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Have you ever noticed that people find it easier to talk about a checkered past? Sometimes we're even, uh, we kind of wear it as a, a badge of honor to show what we've endured. We can even be admired when someone talks about overcoming drugs or drinking or some sort of crazy wild life that was back there. And the more sordid the story is, kind of the better it is. Those are the stories we like to hear and those are the stories we like people to tell. We like the stories of the checkered past. But what about the checkered present? What about the checkered present? You see, to talk about the checkered present takes courage. To be in the midst of the storm and fighting for life is often shunned. It's messy, isn't it? We'd rather hear the story of something that someone's overcome, something that they've conquered. We want to hear the stories of the victor and the victories. We don't want to hear the story of, you know what, my life is a mess right now, right this minute. I can't tell you the number of people who have told me, well, well, well I, I would go to church if I could just get my life together, or I would have a relationship with God if, if things weren't so messed up. The woman drug into the courtyard that day didn't have a checkered past. She had a checkered present. She didn't have a checkered past. She was in the midst of it right that minute. You see, it said that she had been caught in the act of adultery. She had been caught. Now, obviously, I, I, for the sake of my own you know, reputation and whatnot, don't want to go into the word picture of what that means, you fill in the blank of what it means to get caught in the act of adultery. She has a checkered present right that minute. She didn't have it all together, and she finds herself thrown at the feet of Jesus. She was not admired, not revered, not an example to anyone. No one was going to trot her up on stage and say, here, tell your story. She was an embarrassment. Condemnation is cheap and easy. It's even satisfying. It can, make us, it can make us feel good and even justified. Sometimes I think that we make rules up so that when people break the rules, we can judge them. Ever done that? 
Compassion, however, is costly and hard. It denies us satisfaction and can make us feel uncomfortable. But I would rather stand before God one day and give an account for why I extended too much compassion instead of too much condemnation. I would one day rather stand before God and talk about why I hung out with people who had a checkered present than gathered with people who seemed to have it all together. I've done a lot of church consulting over the years, mostly with churches that have been older and struggling with their place in this world. Many of them in decline, plateaued, dying, no life. And one of the first things that we would do when we would go in and work with churches like that is to try to uncover the original DNA of the church. Every church has DNA. Did you know that? Just like you, a church has DNA. Uncovering that DNA usually would take a a great deal of time because sometimes the DNA would be buried under decades and decades of stuff. But over the course of time and working with the church, we could begin to uncover the DNA of that particular body. And what we found is that the DNA of a church is always established within the first two to three years. And whatever's established in that first two to three years will be what that church is about for the next two to three decades. That was why I was so excited and honored to come and teach her today because you here, right in this place, right now, you get to determine what this place is for the generations to come. The people gathered here will make an indelible imprint on the life of this church that either one day will be built upon or one day will come back to haunt them. You get to determine that. You have the influence over that. Of what will this place be like? What kind of gathering will this be? Because you know what, 20 years from now, this won't be known as the church that met in the movie theater. Now, you remember that story maybe 20 years from now, but this church will be remembered for something else. Will that something else be greater and grander, bigger and better, more significant than anything that anyone could have ever dreamt or imagined? Because what I'm about to say next, I really do believe. We don't need more churches like the ones we have now. We need more churches filled with people who realize that they are the church all the time, everywhere. The church isn't a place you go. Church isn't some place you sit in. Church isn't even a place you give to. Church is a place for the unlikely and the unworthy. And that happens all the time everywhere. The influence that this place will have is not what happens in here on a Sunday morning. That's not it. The influence that this place has is what happens in your life on Wednesday afternoon or Friday morning. That's where the revolution occurs. That's where the change happens. Together, we could be a part of something that's bigger than any of us. And that's the beauty of this thing called church. 
is that Jesus doesn't intend for it to be a place where we go, but a thing we become. What kind of place will this place be? What if this place were Church of the Checkered Present? What would that look like? What would it look like for people to say, you know what, I go to that place because no matter where I am in life, I just feel like they love me no matter what. That they accept me right where I am. Not because I have it all together. And I know, undoubtedly, there is someone sitting in this room today who you would rather be anywhere but here. Because in the past, you didn't experience the church I just spoke of. Instead, you experienced the other church, the church that doled out condemnation and judgment, the church that looked upon you because maybe you didn't act right or dress right, you didn't hang out with the right people, you didn't live in the right place. And if that's not you, I know that you know someone who would feel that way if you brought them to a church. We all know those people. But how much time do we spend with them? How much time comes in influencing them to say, you know what, there's this great story of this radical guy named Jesus who hung out with the unlikely and the unworthy. That there they were in the midst of the checkered present. And Jesus isn't standing among the religious leaders. Where is he? He's kneeling in the dirt with her. See, that's the beauty of the God that we serve is that when you're in the dirt, he's in the dirt. When you're at the top, he's at the top. Because not only are you the church all the time, everywhere, no matter where you are, there he is too. And that day, that woman's life was forever changed for she met a man named Jesus who knelt in the dirt with her, asked the best question, where is everyone? Did no one stay to condemn you? No, master, no one stayed. And then he uttered five words that changed her life. Neither do I condemn you. Five words, that's it, changed her life. More importantly, those are five words that change my life every day. <laughs> because my life is the checkered present. Because I have those moments on airplanes, and I know that doesn't seem like much of a big deal. That's, that's not a big you know, story of a way that I messed up, but it reminds me of the deep-rooted things that happen inside of my life every day. Of That's the person that I am. And I spend a lot of time there, but not much time being the person that I want to be. Five words that change her life. You know, being a follower of Jesus is hard. Uh, you might want to write that down. That's a really profound statement. Um, you can go ahead and put that in quotes. My name is spelled T-R-E-V-O-R, Bron, B-R-O-N. Following Jesus is hard. But it is not complicated. Following Jesus is hard, but it is not complicated. And if someone comes along and tells you that it's complicated, they are wrong. It is not complicated. Hard, though. Because the last thing that Jesus says to her is he says, go and leave your life of sin. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad it's going to be, you know, easy. No, but he gives her this opportunity to go and have a totally different life. And I have to remind myself every day that Jesus' words to me are, neither do I condemn you, go and leave your life of sin. I get up every day, I go, all right. And by 9.30, I've blown it completely. 
by 9.15, or 10.15, I'm ready to start over again. And I get to the end of the day and go, wow, that was awful. And I get up the next day and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I go, yes, I'm doing it. And noon. <laughs> and I get up and I do it every day. And some days I do well and some days I don't do so well. The days I, I, I don't do so well, it's because I had to interact with people. totally kidding about that. <laughs> On my way home, I, I pulled into the parking lot at 7-Eleven, a few blocks from my house. Um, this is, of course, where all uh, bachelors do their grocery shopping. Um, I, I, Sean was asking me, uh, or Ryan was asking me earlier if I was married. I said, uh, no, I have a pickup truck and a dog, which makes me a really good country song. I shop at 7-Eleven. So I, I stopped uh, <clears throat> on my way home at 7-Eleven. Um, and uh, when I pulled into the parking lot at 7-Eleven, in four spaces right in front of 7-Eleven, there's a car parked across four of those spaces. What? I look inside, I see a group of high school guys, I go. Immediately, my plan to inflict a lesson was hatched. I pulled my car as close to the front of his car as I could get in the regular parking space. Now I just had to hope that someone would come along and do exactly the same thing behind, and I was willing to elicit support for this. <laughs> I was ready to get out of the car and see if I could get somebody else to do the same thing. As I get out of the car, however, I have one moment of rationale reasoning happen in my head, and that is, wait a minute, I just parked my car really close in front of a guy who's parked his car across four lanes in front of 7-Eleven. Do you really think he cares about your car? I looked at his car, I looked at my car and thought better and said, I better move this. This is a bad plan. <laughs> Feeling rather, you know, brilliant at that moment that yes, I had come up with a bad plan, but I was remedying at this moment. I put the car into reverse to park across the parking lot. As I'm backing up out of the corner of my eye, I realize somebody has come out of 7-Eleven and is following me. All right, so it was a bad plan. You don't need to tell me it was a bad plan. You don't need to follow me across the parking lot to tell me it was a bad plan. So I just ignored the person walking towards me from 7-Eleven, backing into my parking spot. I start to get out of the car when I realize that this person is right outside the window of my car. I look over into my shock and amazement is an elderly woman. I roll down the window of my car and I can barely get the window down when she blurts out, Excuse me, can you tell me where Virginia Avenue is? I asked the clerk inside, but, but no one seemed to know where it was. At that moment, I realized the car is hers. She said, I, I was on my way home with my son, and, and it got dark, and I was trying to get home but before it got dark, and, and, and I got lost, and I can't remember the address. So, well, Virginia Avenue is not very far from here. It's just a couple of blocks down. I said, maybe there's something in your car that has the address on it. Can we go look? I get out of the car. I follow her across the parking lot. And it's then and only then that I realize that her grown son who has Down syndrome is in the front seat. 
as I approach the car, he's terrified that I'm even there. She begins to feverishly look through the glove compartment and her purse, and finally she comes across a bill that's got her address on it. I said, I'll go type this in the GPS. I'll be right back. Yeah, Virginia Avenue was only a few blocks down, but she lived five miles east, and she was driving in the wrong direction. I knew that in the dark and in rush hour, she would never find her way if I just told her where to go. So I said, hey, I'll tell you what, um, why don't you just follow me there? It's on my way home. Uh, and even now, as I tell that story, I, I kind of end up sounding like the good guy, except for I want to tell you that that five miles sucked. <laughs> because for five miles, I got to look in my rearview mirror and be reminded of the fact that I had hatched a plan. Because just not like that day on the airplane where I sat next to that 19-year-old Army private, I pulled into the parking lot that day, and I totally, totally misread the situation. that I looked at what was going on and I thought I knew and so I was going to dole out judgment. And you know, those two stories are just the tip of the iceberg for what happens in our world every day. When we come across people who are spiritually dying or hurting, and what they really need to do is to realize that they're in the mess that is life sometimes is a man named Jesus drawn in the dirt saying, neither do I condemn you. Can I lead you home? My hope for you is that this place, Influence Church, will be the church of the checkered present. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love for us that in the midst of life and in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of pain and anguish, that you are there. That when we find ourselves in the dirt, you're in the dirt with us. God, I want to pray especially for, for the person who's here today who this was the last place that maybe they wanted to be. That God, whenever they find themselves uh, confronted with church or with those who go to church, all, all we feel is ostracized. And God, if the truth is known, none of us have a checkered past. We all have a checkered present. God, I ask that this would be a place that would be unique and special and set apart for those who simply want to know more about you and who you are. The stories like the one found in John chapter 8 would be the stories that would be proclaimed about you and about your son Jesus. The stories where you reach out to the unlikely and the unworthy. Where you give us hope and compassion and grace and love. And it overwhelms us. It overwhelms us because we realize that sometimes that we don't find that coming from other people. So God, may it be something that we always find from you. And because of that, I ask that today, that God, we would be different. We would be different than when we walked into this place because we had an encounter with your son, Jesus. 
where we hear echoing in our ears and in our heart and in our soul five simple words. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. God, change us from the inside out, moment by moment, day by day. And when we're in the dirt, may we find you there. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.